0: Good afternoon to everyone. If you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. It's good to return to our exposition of this book. And um, I've been looking forward to continuing this wonderful chapter. Honestly, a chapter that I've grown to love. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Um, And so it's good to return to this. And we'll be looking at verses 31 to 36 chapter John 3. And we're going to see that the writer gives us why Christ is superior, why he is worthy of all of our attention, why he is worthy to be glorified. Essentially, what happens in these verses is, is, is everything that has come before has been, is going to be summarized and even lifted up higher. Repeated truths that we need to hear again and again. Which is appropriate to our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said When I see you all brought to Christ, I will advance beyond the basics or the rudiments of the gospel. I do not resist the sacred impulse which constrains me to preach over and over and over again the glad tidings of salvation. That's my goal today, is to make much of Christ, to honor Him, to to exalt Him, uh, that we might love Him all the more. So let's uh, take our Bibles. I'm going to go back to verse 27, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, just so that we can get the, the fuller context. Beginning in verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said... I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then right into our text, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard and that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him." Our Father, we do come before you as a, as a needy people, and even just that last verse that we just read, speaking of the wrath of God being upon those that do not believe, that do not trust, that violate, yea, your, your very integrity, Lord, we pray for them, especially that today would be the day of salvation. Oh Lord, would you magnify Christ to us this day. He who is above all, he who had no beginning, he, he who already existed when there was a beginning, according to John 1. Lord, would you, would you make much of him in our hearts, even this very day, by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, John chapter 3 is a wonderful chapter. You'll remember it began with Nicodemus coming at night, asking spiritual questions, And Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And then, of course, leading up to John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then that section, verses 22 to 30, where John's disciples actually come and bring a complaint and say all men are going to Jesus and, and, and we noted there that there was uh, certainly some, some envy that, that happened within them John the Baptist knew he's fading off the scene that's my very purpose I came as a forerunner that Christ might be exalted and yea, we would desire that all men would come to Christ amen that would be a glorious thing The key to joy is a freedom from envy, and John's disciples had envy. They came, and behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John gives that great correction, that a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him by the Father. In other words, God sovereignly appoints certain people at certain times. And he says, I am not the Christ. (laughs) Why are are you still coming to me? You should be detaching yourself from me and actually aligning yourself with Christ. Also, this is a very unique section, verses 22 to 30. It it doesn't occur in any of the the other Gospels. It's a a time where John the Baptist hasn't quite faded off the scene, but the Lord Jesus is ministering at the beginning of his earthly ministry envy can be dangerous. That's why we have to be careful not to allow sins of the heart to fester. Because you know what happens? They just kind of stay there, and they keep gnawing at you, gnawing at you. It's like a a, a rancid cancer that just continues to eat away. Must be mortified. John rejoices at that illustration of verse 29 about the, the bridegroom. He's the friend of the bridegroom, but he rejoices. Greatly, so that his joy is made full, and then that declaration, "He must increase. I must decrease." There's three must day in the Greek, that absolutely necessary. It is 100 percent necessary. And you have, first of all, the one of the sinner in verse seven. "You must be born again." Then you have, how can you be born again? It's in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must make atonement for us. He must be lifted up. And then here, the, the, as it were, the must of the servant. I must decrease, because he's worthy of all exaltation. Right? Everything we do should point to him. So as we come to our text today, there's a question of interpretation. Scholars are a bit divided on this. You'll notice John the Baptist is clearly speaking from verses 27 to 30, but then it just just keeps going. Look at it. He who comes from above is above all. At first glance, you might just say, well, this is still John the Baptist talking. But I've concluded, at least personally from my studies of this text, this is where John the Evangelist Picks up and summarizes the truths that have come before in chapter three, and I so I do think it is John the Evangelist here. I don't often disagree with John Calvin. John Calvin thinks this is still John the Baptist, but um, and so do others. But um, but either way, it's inspired of God, right? It's it's in our it's in our Bibles, so we will take heed to it. What makes a good uh, witness in a court of law. There's really three things. Um, A good witness in a court of law, first of all, requires that a man have first-hand information, right? He must have first-hand information. Secondly, he must be willing to testify. And thirdly, his witness must be reliable. And by this standard, we see John's point. Jesus Christ is the perfect witness. He alone came from heaven. He alone dwelled from all eternity past with the Father and the Spirit. He comes and he brings firsthand information. He's willing to testify. His testimony is reliable. So we're going to look at this text under three heads. The first is verses 31 and 32, "...the unrivaled superiority of his person and his revelation." The unrivaled superiority of his person and his revelation. Secondly, the extraordinary measure of his spirit. And lastly, verse 36, how will you respond to Christ? So, let's look here. The unrivaled superiority of his person and revelation. First of all, the magnificent dignity of his person. Jesus alone was preexistent from all eternity. Jesus alone was sent from the Father. The writer speaks of his superiority, his exalted position. He had no beginning because he always was. By the time there was a beginning, he was already there. He is unique and exalted. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, And by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The contrast between Jesus and the Baptist is continued here. Jesus came from above. He is superior to the witness of John the Baptist. He, he, he's, he, he's of heavenly origin. He's higher than all. He's certainly higher than the voice of the one shouting in the wilderness. In comparison, Jesus is a, a, a herald. Uh, 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 in comparison with Jesus, John the Baptist was a herald of earthly origin. He who came from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus' rank is above all others. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, "...when he brought about in Christ, he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. The best of men and prophets and their origin and dignity are earthbound, and that is strongly contrasted to the preeminence and pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yea, there is no comparison with Christ. I'm afraid that our finite brains have a hard time understanding the glory and the exalted position of Christ as his supremacy. Christ ought to be sought after by all men. Christ ought to be listened to by all men. He is worthy to be listened to Christ is completely and utterly unique from any other messenger that has ever come. JC Ryle says, "No man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to God the Son. There's no way you can give too much honor to the Son because he's worthy of all honor and glory." Speaking Paul speaking of Adam says in 1 Corinthians 15, "The first man was of the earth Earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. And as is heavenly are those who are heavenly. You see there that Paul makes the same distinction that John the evangelist is making here. Jesus is above all. Those who are of the earth are of the earth. But Jesus is above all. When we think of the transition from John the Baptist to that of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a new allegiance that, should, that, that don't follow the, the prophet of the old age, but the Savior of the new age. There's a transition here that's happening, clearly. First John 4, 5, Those who are from the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world listens to them. Secondly, under the said he brings superior revelation. Look at verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Verse 33. He who received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. See, his testimony is pure It should be accepted. His very words should be respected. He doesn't bring hearsay and mere opinions and everything, but what he has heard, or what he testifies, is what he has heard firsthand in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, in contrast to all the prophets that have gone before. They were only mediators of the revelation of God, right? They had a certain purpose. In fact, the revelation was oftentimes incomplete to them. They did not often fully understand. But Jesus speaks as an eyewitness of heavenly things. He fully understands what God's purpose is in this world. Plus, he speaks with great authority He brings the the full and final revelation. Remember in our expositions in Hebrews, right in the the beginning of chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Our New Testament reading that J.T. read in John 8, Jesus, if you notice that language there, go back and read it again later, but um, Jesus says that he says the very things that he's heard from the Father. Just one of the verses, verse 14, Jesus answered and said, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I've come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I've come from and where I'm going. In fact, that's a fascinating chapter of that the, the conflict with the Pharisees, and strong words occur all throughout. It's 58 verses, or however many verses it is there. But uh, this is a section where he's, he's trying to bear witness. Remember, he's a faithful, he's a reliable witness. But they had hard hearts. What makes Jesus so different? I mean, isn't it the common mindset that aren't all religions the same? You know, you got a little Islam, you got a little Roman Catholic, a little Mormonism, Jehovah. I mean, they all, kind of, they all have church buildings, right? I mean, what, what's the difference? What sets Jesus Christ apart? What's, what, what, is it, what is the uniqueness of Christ? This is the very reason that no one should follow Muhammad or the pantheon of Hindu gods or Buddha or any of that. None of them have real revelation from above. Only Jesus Christ brought revelation from above. It's a reliable revelation. It's a superior revelation. So many men, with their earthly philosophies of humanism and atheism and Marxism, actually, William Barclay actually illustrates this. If you want information, you have to go to a person that possesses certain information. If you want information about a family... We will only get that firsthand from a member of that family. If we want information about a town, we'll get that firsthand from someone that lives in that town and can speak to those things. So then, same thing, Army, whatever. You want to know the Navy? What's it like being in the Navy? Well, we have Navy men here. We can ask, what's it like? What's your experience, right? So then, if we want information about God, we will get it only from the Son of God. If we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we will only get it from him who comes from heaven. So when Jesus speaks about God and he speaks about heavenly things, says John, it is no secondhand tale and it should be relied on. We can trust with 100% reliability everything that Jesus says about God. Look at the text here, verse 32. He was seen and heard of that he testifies. Is that past tense or present tense? right we, we would just say, well, he testified during his earthly ministry. We would tend to say past tense, but it 's in the present tense on purpose, because he is still testifying through weak preachers of the word. He, pre, his, he still testifies through this final revelation that can be trusted. So he still is testifying. But notice he says, no man receives his testimony. Well, we know that some men do, but largely it is discounted. Like it said right in chapter 1, it said he came to his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. Right? Explaining why people refuse Christ, Arthur Pink says The message is too heavenly for them. They have no relish for it. They have hearts only for things of the earth. John Calvin puts it this way, commenting on this. As nothing is more dear to him than his truth, so we cannot render him more acceptable worship than when we acknowledge by our faith that he is true. For then we ascribe that honor, which truly belongs to him, on the other hand, we cannot offer him a greater insult than to not believe the gospel, for he cannot be deprived of his truth, and without taking away all his glory and majesty, his truth is in some sort closely linked to the gospel, and it is his will that there should, that it should be recognized." And then verse 33, But he who received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. That's an interesting um, use of language, isn't it? What, what does that mean, to, to seal, right? It's the same word that's used of when Jesus was in the tomb, and they, they, they sealed the, the stone at the front. They, they placed a seal Right? It's, and, so, and actually, in, in the ancient world, people used signet rings, right? And they would put wax, their signet ring, with wax around important documents. Why? It spoke to its authenticity, anything that was important. And so here, really, it's, it's well, William Henderson, I think, captures it. Those who accept Christ's testimony concerning himself, namely that he is the Son of God, thereby set the seal of their approval upon God's testimony regarding Jesus, thou art my beloved son. In other words, agreeing with all the things that has already been communicated in this gospel. So, let's move on to verses 34 and 35, the extraordinary measure of his spirit. Jesus possesses infinite fullness of his spirit. Look in verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and he who gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is a certified revealer of truth. When you go to the doctor's office, and you wait in the lobby for a while, finally you get into a room, and you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs, or maybe scrolling through something on your phone, what's on the wall? It's a diploma, right, of that doctor. It shows us that he's certified to come in to diagnose my bad knee, or whatever it is. Or a police officer comes to your door, there's a badge or identification that is shown. Jesus is a certified revealer of truth. Actually, John makes numerous references to this idea that, look, if... He whom God has sent. That occurs over 20 times in this gospel, oftentimes the very words of Christ. I'll give you two examples, John 5, 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In chapter 17, in that high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here we have, he whom God has sent. It's, this, you know, you read the gospel in its entirety in one sitting, and it's fascinating. Like, you would recognize, this occurs again, and again, and again, and again. The Father sent the Son. It's a glorious thing. It's good news to us. Now it is his only begotten Son, having been sent by God. He speaks the words of God. He's not like any Ordinary prophet. Actually, all throughout redemptive history, God spoke to his people through many accredited messengers. Each received a measure of the spirit of God that was fitting for whatever their task was. For Isaiah, remember, the calling, send me, Lord, right? He sees the holiness of God, send me. And he says, these people will not listen to you, they will, not, they will not respond. And so there was a measure of the Spirit that enabled him to persevere through his ministry that saw very little fruit. And so too could be said for, for all the other ones. But Jesus, the, the Spirit is given without measure. That's a, a figure of speech to negate something to affirm the positive. He gives the Spirit without measure. It's like, um, he is not a bad football player. What does that mean? It means he's a good football player, right? So that's the idea. He gives the Spirit without measure. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. The Father gives the Spirit without measure. This, this means that the Father has not withheld any measure of the Spirit to His Son. John the Evangelist is saying that there is a perfect communion and union and communication between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. This is not true of other religious teachers, As Boyce says, that in in all of their teaching, all the other religious teachers of the world is always mixed with maybe a little bit of falsehood or maybe a lot of falsehood, right? But it's not infinitely pure and solid um, words that are without error like the words from Christ. He goes on to say that is why we need to point to someone greater, point to another authority, and never try to claim that we have that truth in us. And then verse 35, Jesus is the object of the Father's love. The Father loves the Son. Isn't that beautiful? The Father loves the Son. You think, why does that even need to be said? Like, like we know that, right? The, the, the Son loves the Father, right? The Spirit. Like, we know that there's a sweet union and communion, but, but it's, it's, it's inserted here. The Father loves the Son, and he loves him so much. Look at the rest of the verse. He's given all things into his hand. This means, um, well, Jesus says similar thing in John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he has come forth from God and is going back to God. The Son is completely sovereign. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is, is lord and psalm 2 that messianic psalm all the psalms are messianic in one way or another but psalm 2 and verse 8 ask of me and i will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession matthew 11 all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And notice, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That's a, a verse that speaks of every, everything being handed to Him, but also that those who do not believe, can, who cannot believe, it's because the Son has not willed that. So, that's a lot of truth about Christ, his exalted position. But how will you respond today? How do you respond to this one that is exalted, this one that is above all, this one that brings superior revelation, this one that is loved by God, this one that that, that, where it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. How will you respond? That is a fitting climax to this whole entire chapter. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's there's two ways, right? You either believe or you don't believe. And if you don't believe, the wrath of God abides on you. But first of all, I just want to encourage, trust the Son of God. I mean, even the very testimony of John the Baptist that we've seen back in chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In verse 35, Behold the Lamb of God. And then here, there's this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Have you received this testimony? This speaks of a decisive act. It speaks of regeneration. It speaks of being born again. Have you set your seal upon God's truth and embraced it as true? The gospel is true whether you believe it or not. You know that? It really doesn't matter what you might believe personally in your own wicked heart. The gospel is true. But we also need to know that God's love, I mean, here it says, the Father loves the Son, Well, also God's love is so immense It's something that we should not think about flippantly. This love has been manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ living a perfect life and never sinning for 33 years. This love has been manifested on a bloody cross, excruciating pain for six hours on the cross, the Father's wrath being poured out upon him as he died for the sins of all who would believe. This love has been manifested by him rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, reigning even now in heaven as our great high priest. How will you respond? Do you know the truth of what Henry Law says? He says, Christ is an ocean in which every drop is infinite compassion. That's how much compassion Jesus Christ has. It's immeasurable. It's not like he's got, well, he's got this much. He's more compassionate than my wife or my husband or my friend or whatever, or my boss at work. He's an infinite, infinite amount of compassion for all who will come to him. So you have to come to him. You have to put one foot in front of the other and go and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says believing and obeying. Always run side by side. They coincide. But the alternative, the threat of judgment here is alarmingly explicit. Alarmingly explicit. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you reject Christ, you know what you're doing? If you reject Christ, you're calling him a liar. You're saying he's got no integrity. You're saying that, that, that the things that he said of himself is not true. Unbelief is a defiant disobedience. There's no hope of heaven for you. No matter what you think, there, no matter what your friends think, the word of God stands true. The Bible says that you're at enmity with God in your unbelieving state. And, and you're outside of Christ, and therefore you are under the wrath of God. It's only a matter of time until you will taste that wrath. Hebrews 10, of verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. You see, hell is a real place. I know it's not pleasant to talk about. Jesus talked more about that subject than any other subject, right? Hell and money. (laughs) And money actually puts a lot of people into hell and their love of it and their rejection of Christ. But it's a real place. And it's a conscience, a conscious torment for all eternity. And from that torment, you will be summoned one day to stand before God in judgment, and that is called the second death. You will be united to your body, the body in which your lusts and your pleasures were satisfied again and again. You'll be reunited to that body and then thrown back into torment for all eternity. It's been said that heaven is very near to those that walk in faith and trust. It's very near. I could have a heart attack right now right? It's so near. I'll go t- To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's so near, but the alternative is true, and yet men are blind to it. Hell is very near those walking in disobedience and refusing to believe. The Heidelberg Catechism, it's, it's, it's something that you could read devotionally. I'm reading it devotionally again. Um, it's just so warm. What is my only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I with my body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who with his precious blood has satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready and henceforth to live for him. And if that is said true, if that's all true of you, and if that's running through your veins and you know it you want to live for him right you want to bring honor and glory to him two quick points of application how will you magnify christ will you give him the honor that is due him he's he's superior he's highly above all john's disciples instead of being envious should have honored him jesus is so wonderful we can trust his word for our entire lifetime in the very words that he says. In response, we should have hearts that, that ache and long to worship him. Crown him with many crowns should be our cry, or what we will sing in a moment. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels' prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Spurgeon says the glory of Jesus and of the Father are so wrapped up together that, that the grace which magnifies the one magnifies the other. They mutually bring glory to each other. Now why is it that some people reject Christ? One thing is for sure. It's not from a lack of evidence. Right? There's abundant evidence. I mean, just even general revelation. This last sunrise or sunset that you saw... The rain, the storms, the fierce, raging tornadoes and hurricanes. God is sovereign in all of that. The flower that blooms, the grass that is actually springing up and turning green in Southern California. All of that speaks of the glory of God, that there is a God. We didn't just end up here on accident. It's not to a lack of evidence, but also. This word, and this word tells us that each man knows deep down there's a God. And so, and especially to be hearing the very words of God um, through a sermon, it's not from a lack of evidence. God himself has testified. He has shown so much. In fact, you just being here today, you have enough light to know that you will stand before God someday. But also, it tells us like back in verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Ah, but men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Men love darkness. Others are being choked out by the world and the cares of the world, being suffocated by these things. Worldliness is a huge problem in our day. John tells us in his first epistle, in chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Some of you are more concerned about your bank account than you are about the things of God. Some of you are more concerned about what you're going to eat for dinner later today than what God thinks of you. If you refuse Jesus Christ, know that God's wrath abides on you. And also know that there's no second chances. That's heresy. That's heresy. Don't insult God and bring wrath upon yourself. In fact, to reject Christ is to really deny all three persons of the Holy Trinity. We have right here in our text, the Father loves the Son. He gives His Spirit in fullness of measure. You have the glories of the Trinity all worked out in harmony to provide salvation. It's an insult on every attribute of God that I don't really believe God is just, I'll escape somehow. You're, you're rejecting his wisdom, his mercy, and his love. J.C. Ryle, if heaven is very near to the believer, then hell must be very near to the unbeliever. So if you're outside of Christ, I plead with you, flee to Christ while you still have breath. It's like Lot and his wife and the family running out of Sodom as is fire and brimstone are being rained upon Sodom, and they were told not look to not look back. And what happened? Lot's wife looked back because of her love of the old city and turned to a pillar of salt. Your days are numbered. We know not how many days we'll have. Young people die all the time. Today is a day of salvation. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious passage. Lord, uh, we pray that you would save the lost among us, but also, Lord, we pray that most of us that are believers here, that you would indeed enable us to give you the worship due your name. You are worthy, O God. Lord, help us to see Christ in this exalted Um, on display in this exalted fashion, that he is above all, that he's come from heaven, that he has the very words of God, that he has the fullness of the Spirit, that he's full of compassion. Oh, Lord, may that encourage our hearts even this very day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.